Salud, mi familia, and welcome back to another episode of The Cast and the Furious. That look from our friends, us here at Days of Thunder, where we uh, look at the cinematic universe of the fast and the furious two films at a time of course i can't do this alone so i am joined with my pod pals firstly from the strong style story podcast and from centrax and the sticks it is chris damaseno chris how are you i've been doing pretty good dave thank you for asking of course it's good to be back to do another episode of the best booked uh, pro wrestling company and cinematic universe history arguably and yes that includes marvel on the yeah. subject matter <laughs> yeah toretto championship wrestling is back for another edition uh, i'm also joined by from link to the cast my co-host over there jack lazel jack how are you yeah not bad you know i uh, i had an audition for the teriyaki boys tribute band but i couldn't get into it so <laughs> I, i'm here instead doing this with you <laughs> uh it's quite a jam-packed episode guys um not as jam-packed as our next one but i think it's there's a lot to say about both these films because i think there's a lot to unpack in the first one and then the second one is probably this the the first or second most maligned in the whole franchise and it's going to be interesting to uh probably more interesting to unpack one of these films than actually watch it but we'll see how it goes um without further ado gentlemen um let's just get into our first one and that is the fast and furious tokyo drift this is a 2006 movie releasing june 16th 2006 104 minutes of cinema this was oh yes (laughs) with a budget of 85 million dollars it grossed 159 million dollars incidentally the lowest box office gross of the entire franchise uh, which is interesting because it's not actually the lowest rated one jack uh you have a new feature starting on this show which is you're going to take us in the wayback machine and tell us what was happening this week in the world well dave i'm glad that you asked that um, so we've got <laughs> <laughs> totally off the cuff. <laughs> yes, Dave, I am now a robot. No, so yes, handing me our improv <laughs> troupe is off to a great start. It, 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 ter- it turns out that Turkey going over for three during the first round of Eros really just broke Jack in a way that we could not fathom. <laughs> oh, Barack Yilmaz, why? Anyway, so. Putting Burak Yilmaz aside, which really one should never do, especially when one is in Lille. Um, number one in the charts in America was Raiden by Chameleon Air. I mean, <laughs> like you do not. Th- why was that song not on the soundtrack to this movie? I feel like it really should have been. It would have. It's like yeah. the uh, appropriate song. And then it was Begat the next week by Hips Don't Lie, which I just feel this when you think of like 2006 ass songs. Like those are two like really perfect examples. Yeah, yeah. like mm. but they, they, they correspond well to the era. I'll say exactly. That. Like, but over in the UK, it was a song. And Chris, I'll be interested to to hit, see if you've ever heard of this. It's called "I Wish I Was a Punk Rocker with Flowers in My Hair." Oh my god, Sandy Tom. Sandy Tom. Yeah, I have heard the title before, but not the actual song. So half and half. I, yeah, I mean, so I, if I was the rock, I would describe it as a candy ass piece of music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really wasn't great. But the next week it was Begat by Manny uh, by Nelly Furtado. And I'm like, yes, we're back to the 2006 Ooh, yeah. ass song. Yeah. There we go. Exactly. I, uh... God, Nelly Furtado. Remember that woman? 
and yeah, like but, the two good albums that she made during that time. Bizarre that she went from somebody that kind of sounded a bit like I wish I was a punk rocker with flowers in my hair, Sandy Tom, like you know, like a Starbucks CD. Yeah, kind she, of did, person. she did. I'm like a bird was the first. Yeah, kind of exactly. Big Nelly Furtado hit, and mm-hmm. and then she went like down the sort of Christina Aguilera kind of route of like you know I'm gonna only I'm gonna say this word. I know it's not a word. Dirtification. Right, <laughs> and she got produced by Timberland, and then all of a sudden comes out with, I've got to say, uh, the baseline to Manny is still absolutely slaps. And one yeah. other thing was happening on that day, boys. Can you guess what was happening in June of 2006? I don't know, but uh, I'll tell you one thing. I am really enjoying this episode of The Furtado and the Furious so far. <laughs> oh, like, just shut the podcast down yeah. now. It doesn't get I, I know, I know this week in 2006, I turned 17, but I'm sure, I'm sure that's not the historically significant event you're talking about. No, so at this time was the World Cup of Football in 2006, ah. which is, of course, was won by the mighty Italy being France in the final. But it on was. this day... In 2006, we had Argentina beating Serbia 6 0. Oh uh, in... my God. Yep. That was the one with like the 36 pass goal. Yep, 36 yeah. pass goal and two goals by um, strangely, weirdly Liverpool cult hero Maxi Rodriguez. I think is probably the best thing he yeah. ever did in his career. That, I remember that was like uh, Argentina's World Cup was like Maxi Rodriguez and Lucha Gonzalez as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Not the other guy who were like the two of them were in the midfield bossing it. And it was the World Cup where people couldn't get their heads around why Messi and Tevez were only getting like 20 minute runs in games when it's like they're clearly better than everybody else. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, Netherlands beat Ivory Coast 2-1 uh, in a team that featured uh, Didier Drogba and Solomon Kalou, which obviously I have great interest in. And Mexico drew 0-0 with Angola. And I could not. I looked at the Angola lineup and I as I am a football fan and I could not tell you who any of those people were. So <laughs> good luck to those gentlemen. But yeah, that's that's setting the scene for what was happening on this day in 2006. So I can actually tie some of your historical events together into one anecdote because I remember something I was doing this summer. Unfortunately, it wasn't watching Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. But there was there is like the biggest festival in Ireland at the time was about 15 minutes from my house. Um, so I would go, this was my, 2006 was the first year I went there. It's called Oxygen, but spelled with an E instead of a Y. Because oh, reasons. you crazy Irish people. Yeah, I know, right? Um, and what I would later learn is that um, it, the first act of the day on the main stage was a real mixed bag. And uh, the first day I was there, Sandy Tom was the first act on the main stage as no I was walking way. in. And not only that, but then when I was there, the headliner on the Sunday was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And as we were in the crowd waiting for them to come on, that was the day of the World Cup final in 2006. And I was dodging the results, dodging the game. Mates of mine had gone back to the campsite to watch it on the big screens. I was like, no, I my granddad is taping it. I'm going to watch it when I go home. And as I was stuck in the middle of 60,000 people waiting for the Chilies to come on, they put the fucking penalty shootout on the screen. Oh, uh, I was fuming because I had done so well to avoid any indication of what was happening in the match. But also, it was a great experience to watch a penalty shoot out with 60,000 incredible fans. yeah yeah uh it was awesome and then i believe later that night uh kasabian were on one of the other stages and serge pizzoro came out head to toe in italian flag clobber yep absolutely pissed drunk <laughs> yeah that sounds perfect uh yeah. one of one of us though was at the cinema 
for the opening oh. week yeah. of Tokyo Drift. <laughs> oh, um, segue. You want to you tell us about that one, Chris? Oh, yeah, definitely. So just to set the background here, this has been a couple of weeks after I had uh, finished up with high school here in the United States. I had graduated late May, so about three weeks or so after that was when the movie came out. But at the time, I was already about a year into working at a movie theater. So I very much was familiar with the fact that there would be a Fast and Furious movie coming out in cinemas during that time of my summer vacation. And how I knew that exactly is because for, I want to say about four and a half to six weeks, I don't remember the exact time, but I know that it was sort of that time loop. Uh, they had the well-known hit by the Teriyaki Boys as Tokyo Drift playing on the intercom of the cinema pretty much <laughs> at least once an hour. So oh, wow. you, you, you got to get real familiar with it because, yeah, they were advertising the heck out of that. And with the movie itself, eventually was something that I was able to watch the day after it came out on that Saturday weekend yeah. of it. It was really my first cinematic experience with the Fast and the Furious uh, franchise as a whole. And for me, it was kind of a weird, but very nice Western love letter to Japanese domestic market and Japanese car culture and the initial D series. So I, I appreciated it for what it was, even though I don't think a lot of people got it. So that's yeah. why as like the terms of the gross amount that it made total, I think that's why it made much less within the United States than it did throughout the rest of the world. It's definitely something that people didn't get and certainly didn't seem to appreciate at the time as that stuff going on. And I, I look back to myself when I eventually saw it on DVD. And for me, the bits that uh, I think I said this on the on the first episode where I really didn't care for this one specifically the first time I saw it because I came from an area where there was a lot of that. We call it boy racer culture over here where like lads are spending hundreds putting UV lighting in the wheel arches of a Citroen Saxo or something like <laughs> that and uh, looking like dog shit going around. And the people who are involved in that culture are just the worst human beings like the people I did not want to be hanging out with at school or in college or anything like that. So I kind of bristled against that a bit, much as I had loved like Need for Speed Underground on my PS2. I I, right. I, I very much, because this was a, a film that the only people I knew who were super into it were those boy racers. I was like, oh no. I was kind of almost trying to hate it and not give it a fair chance until I came back to it years later. Um, but yeah, I, I, like you said, Chris, it is the lowest grossing uh, in the series. And I think that reflects fairly well how people didn't get or appreciate what it was doing and what it was paying homage and reverence to, which is stuff I now understand much better myself at my 30s going back to it. Also, uh, I have here what I'm going to do for the, um, the, the rest of the films in the series is to tell you the Rotten Tomatoes score for every mm -hmm. film. Now, I actually went back and got fa The Fast and the Furious and Too Fast, Too Furious as well. So to catch you all up, the uh, for Fast and Furious, the original, uh, the critical score was 53% and the audience score 24. Really? The audience yeah. score for the first movie is only 24%? Mm. Has it been review bombed or something? I don't know. It's not that bad is it no it's not especially when you compare it to too fast too furious which i thought 
is the worst I think is the worst in the series. Uh, 36 critical, so a lot worse on the critical front, but 50 audience score. Yep. Oh, I mean, it took me a long time to stay up and cast all those votes overnight. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, for this like film, though, Dios, bitch. <laughs> for this film that we are here to talk about, uh, Tokyo Drift, uh, the critical score was thirty-seven percent, so only one percent higher than mm-hmm. Too Fast, Too Furious for the critics, but a audience rating of sixty-nine percent. Nice. 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 <laughs> um, so I, I guess, you know, best place to start is at the beginning of this movie and talk about the world's oldest teenager. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. My, my, my first note. I'm so happy you said that. My first note is Lucas Black, though 23 or 24, looks legit 30 in the high school scenes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's playing an 18-year-old. He was 24. He looked about 42. Yep. <laughs> um, God bless him. Um, I remember when I watched the the giant bomb, they did their commentary over this film, their uh, film and 40 series. And it took a good 10 minutes for Vinny uh to believe that he wasn't an undercover cop pretending to be a, a teenager. Uh, yep, he's a knock. Absolutely. Yeah. He looks like one, really um, does. So there is a lot going on in this opening 10 or 15 minutes, you guys. Oh, my God. It feels like an entire high school movie plot condensed into 10 minutes. Yeah, it is the most mid-2000s high school opening, apart from the fact that there's a middle-aged man as your main character. Um, I I just want to point out that the, the douchey jock... Um, yeah. that he's going up against is played by Zachary Ty Bryan from, yeah. uh, from Home, Home Improvement, Improvement. Yeah. Who, who was at the time two years older than Lucas Black and looked <laughs> conservatively 15 years younger than and him. In hindsight as well, very much Dolph Ziggler vibes in this Yes, he's giving off. Yeah, but also I just want to say fuck Zachary Ty Bryan because I looked up what he was doing lately and apparently strangling his girlfriend and pleading guilty for that. So oh. big fuck that guy. On the podcast, don't yeah. really give him any credit for this. But yeah, much. I'm glad he looked like an idiot in this one then. Yeah. Um, so they get into a beef with one another, him and Home Improvement Son. And uh, what then happens is they go to like one of those ghost estates, one of those ones that's like a half built housing estate that seems to have been abandoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they drag race around it. And you know, coming from Too Fast, Too Furious, where I wasn't really into the amount of cg and apart from that chase at the beginning i wasn't really feeling a lot of the car action this felt like returning to that old comfortable pair of shoes in a way where it's just like high octane we don't give a fuck let's just try to do silly stuff with cars kind of chase uh what did you guys think of it I just think it was done for the lamest reason possible. I mean, the girl in quest, the, you know, romantic interest in every high school movie condensed into a 15 minute scene, basically saying, oh yeah, you two need a race. The winner gets me. And it's just like, the dumbest, this is the dumbest thing. And that's exactly why they're going to go for it. And lo and behold. Yeah. It's uh, the implications uh, grim <laughs> yeah the actress that played the winner gets me girl who i, ca- I can't remember a character name nor do i care to look it up the film uh, didn't um, want you to remember because they no. certainly like i didn't realize until i was writing my notes this evening that home improvement son's character's name is clay yep clay um but like 
she's literally a trophy and she presents herself as a trophy and yeah it is pretty hideous but apparently she now works in like talent relations and, and doesn't really do movies and stuff anymore it's one of the only people i've seen like third or fourth build on a wikipedia page that doesn't actually have a wikipedia page um so yeah i it was difficult to find out information about nikki griffin let me tell you um but yeah jack what, what did you think about the actual substance of the race there's um there's like some cool moments in it, some crashing through construction sets and, and things like that. I, I just, to me, I felt like it was a return to just fun racing. Yeah, it, it kind of reminded me, there's a scene in, I think it's either Lethal Weapon 3 or Lethal Weapon 4, where they're driving around a very similar sort of half-constructed housing estate thing. And yeah, the aesthetic of it was was pretty cool. I quite liked the shots to like Zachary Ty douchebag Clay in the car um, and him like doing the faces and then her being like oh don't you love me why don't you drive I'm fast and then like basically uh, every single building or anything that Lucas Black crashed through he crashed through at some point and like should have lost the race legitimately three or four times but still managed to always catch up and get back in the race should have lost the race and also should have died should have died yes. and, and you're forgetting the piece de resistance of oh. this whole situation is that it was soundtracked by Boa de Boa by Kid Rock now, yeah. I don't think <laughs> you could get any more for a man who is so clearly from Alabama that he might as well have the Confederate flag tattooed on his face. You could have a better soundtrack for him drag racing his way and, through a neighborhood. And correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but what, this would have been like post the first era of people buying Kid Rock records before his yeah, big comeback. 100%. Yeah, at this point, it's almost like Wow, did we rewound the clock back to like 1998, 1999 with this one? Yeah. Or it's like we're borrowing choice wasn't on this one to go with that. It's like we're borrowing it, songs that didn't make it onto the soundtrack of the first two. Yeah, exactly. Because eventually the soundtrack takes a twist the moment yeah. in which uh, we kind of get, you know, past that first 15 I, minutes. So. When the movie gets good yeah. compared good. to the yes. Yeah, and I want to say like, I don't want to, I don't want to lavish such praise on this film as to call it a motif, but it is kind of like one of the striking contrasts is like, it doesn't get much more like stereotypical gearhead American than something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like that seems like something that someone would blare, blare out a window speeding past you. Uh, And then obviously when we get to Tokyo, the, the, the shift in the music and the shift in the color palette and how things are shot as well. Like it really does contrast very well. I don't know how much of that is necessarily yeah. intentional. Well, well Dave, look, as, a, as a wise man once said, bore it to bore, to bang to bang, diggy, 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 <laughs> said, said up jump the boogie. And I think we all know exactly what that means. Yeah. Deep. <laughs> Deep. <laughs> so, I do find it interesting, though, that for this particular movie in question, with the amount of extras and the work that sort of went behind as well, that majority of it was shot in Los Angeles, and they pulled yeah. it off. So yeah. good on them for that, because... Yeah. Fair yeah. play to them, yeah. I-, I wish I was following that race on uh, on the on the like truck. They had like a sort of like a flatbed truck going behind the races that was like filled with people who were like cheering 
um and was that 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 truck was like keeping up with even with all the people and stuff in it which i found really hilarious as well yeah it's just one of those things again where it is like with this particular movie the amount of cars that you see in it the amount of cars that were crashed in total just the amount of cars that they had to like export from japan to los angeles to shoot this because with the uh wheels being the steering wheel being on the right hand side for those cars uh jdm cars and such it's if you're going for that legitimate look, you've got to have the right cards to do it. And yeah. props mm. to them, they spent their money accordingly to get that done. Mm. For sure. And it is a credit to them. Um, Sean gets caught then, and uh, he's in what seems like not his first tussle with the law. And um, his, his mom comes over, who seems to be overly friendly with the, uh, the isn't she, isn't he, isn't the police officer like dating her or something? I don't know. It's I just in, thought I she was trying outright to... said, but it's kind of implied. I thought she was just trying to flirt his way out of trouble. Yeah. Like this yeah. isn't the first time that she's had to go and like, you know, yeah. sweet Is talk that... a cop out, yeah. out of. Yeah. I quite enjoyed the fact that he was like, you know what what happened to to my car and bear in mind this is probably like i i, I would say at most an hour or so after the the race and he'd had it crushed into a cube yeah. <laughs> it's like what did you do with the car i crushed it i'm like how the fuck has he done that that quickly he must have rung up the wolf from pulp fiction they're gonna say to rung, be, yeah. rung up the carpenter raymond calitri from gone in 60 seconds <laughs> yeah. Mentioned furniture cars. every episode <laughs> you need to bring me 50 cars memphis <laughs> uh, so essentially they they strike a bargain where instead of sending him off to juvie he just like leaves the continent yeah. uh, goes over to uh tokyo uh not just for the fuck with because his his dad is living over there and mm-hmm. um by the way as gentlemen all three of us who really appreciate a lot of things about japan japanese culture like if all we had to do when we were kids was be absolute gobshites and we get like to go to japan i would have been the biggest gobshite on the planet <laughs> <laughs> how cool is that in hindsight, you can go like whatever your your folks are saying to you, oh god, you were a little shithead as a kid. You can say, Well, I was trying to go to Japan. Yeah, that was my reasoning. <laughs> if you just sent me off to a boarding school in Japan, I would have been delighted. Yep. Um so he has a fantastically awkward first meeting with his dad, <laughs> who yeah. is entertaining a young woman. <laughs> I yeah, uh, are we thinking this is a prostitute? I mean, we... it is it, again. It's one of those things where it's asking you to read quite heavily between the, between lines, the lines that yes, indeed, mm-hmm. she is. Yeah, I um, hear you. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. His dad is, a, in spite of that, his dad like it very much seems to be like the strict parent. He's like uh, ex-military. He like, yeah, ex-military, which makes sense because japan uh, within japan like the u.s military still has a very heavy presence there in the okinawa region so that's most likely where he probably like was stationed and the like and then just stayed in the country after yeah i think it's i don't know if he outright says it but i think the idea is that he's still like a contractor there no he's not yes. enlisted but he's a contractor that's why he's still living there um and then kind of uh he gets to he's sent to school over there and uh I do love a good fish out of water skit and there is a couple of good moments of uh, Sean being a real fish out of water and the first is him having to get into his uniform to go to school 
and then also having to put on his uh like he's not allowed to wear his outdoor shoes into the classroom that he's given out to Nesco put on the slippers um but the thing that struck me is my god this man has an immediate understanding of Japanese that he managed to find his way to the school yeah (laughs) like reading maps and signs in Japanese no fucking problem to him yeah I I mean to be fair, as we would eventually find out, find out much, much later in the series, this movie did technically take place in 2013. So I'm assuming map technology probably was on the up and up at that juncture. Yeah, yeah. that's it's, it's one of those things that, that has been retconned for the better. Yep. <laughs> um, in school, then he meets uh, the character's name is Twinkie, but he will be I mean, always referred to as Bow Wow. I mean. That? Twinkie, yeah. like you yeah, maybe just do another pass on that name. You well, know, no, do you know what the thing is? I actually think, in some ways, that's perfect because you know the way, like if, when you're in school and somebody comes in from a different town or a different part of the country, they get referred to as like the Cork kid or you know the Dublin kid or something like that. In our, are school. you saying or, he he came fully formed out of a snack cake? Dave? But this is, is this that what happened? It's like he's he until Sean got there, he was the American in the class. So like, what's an American snack Twinkie? You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, I guess so. I it's, it, it's not yeah. it's not one of the bigger logic leaps this series asks us to make i'll put it that way <laughs> i guess not it's also means something completely different in the gay community that yes. i think yeah. Bow wow would Indeed. not have been particularly exactly. overly happy yeah. about um, um, which, which it, means especially me quite a bit. yeah especially current day bow wow that's trying to work his way into a wrestling match of some sort with somebody yeah super weird which uh another interesting note though is that when sean and twinkie do meet for the first time you know, Bow Wow is already on this grind, on this hustle, trying to sell these Air Jordans, you know, talking about how much he loves Michael Jordan, which is hilarious considering that Bow Wow played a Michael Jordan fan in the infamous 2002 movie, Like Mike. Yeah, there you go. Not only that, but, you know, that's a thing that's maybe made worse by the retconning. It's super weird that a guy who's like 16 or 17 in 2013 would be so into... Even in 2006, Jordan. it would be slightly odd. Yeah. Because what are we thinking? He'd but, be like, like 17, and 16 here. If it was 2006, then you'd say, right, he was a small kid when Jordan was still going. But like 2013, like that guy was like a toddler when Jordan would have been. <laughs> Maybe he was just a real big fan of his Wizards run in like 2003. <laughs> <or whatever. laughs> I don't know, man. Um, so in school as well, he meets the, the kind of love interest of the movie, which is Neela. Um, we'll come back to her in a second, but uh, Bow Wow is the guy who introduces uh, Sean to the world of drifting. And this is the point at which you kind of realize, oh, this isn't the uh, the Fast and Furious of old. It's not just about drag racing. It's slightly different. But let me tell you, <laughs> Do you know what it made me think of is like, you know, like in the, that Simpsons episode where where Lisa's like, um, you know, in Rand McNally, uh, you know, they wear sh- they wear hats on their feet and hamburgers eat people. Yeah. It was basically uh, in Japan, cars go sideways kind of. Yeah. Speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just what made me think of that. Well, one of my favorite uh, moments in the whole film and maybe even the whole franchise is the reveal of Bow Wow's car. Oh, I mean, that scene is perfection. Of all the things, the first time I saw this, of all the things I was thinking, I was like, okay, so it's going to be a switch out and it's going to be a rubbish car. 
in my life, I would never have predicted an incredible Hulk-themed minivan. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's so good. Not and they draw it out for so long. It's so funny. Like, because they have mm-hmm. one of those car parking facilities where yeah. it's like it's like a vending machine where it's spinning around. The car comes down, it's green, it's like a little bit in shadow at first. And then you see like there's a big dent in the back. And then as it's turning, you realize as the light strikes it, it's the dent of a fist. You see the side of the car, you see the dent of like a foot, and you see the front, and it's the Hulk. <laughs> Amazing. They foreshadowed the MCU, I've got to say. Yeah. Well, that's the thing as well. This, the Fast and Furious, is a universal uh, film series, and Universal owned the rights to the Hulk at the time. They did. They did. Yeah. They made a really terrible movie with Ang Lee, who should have known better. They certainly did. Um, yeah, so this is kind of the the initial, his uh, exploration of the drifting scene where not only do we meet Neela again, but we meet uh, the villain of the piece, Takashi, also known as the Drift King or DK. DK. Or Donkey ja- Kong is or, here. Or the Justin Timberlake of Japan, as he yeah. was referred to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they're finally here performing for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also a strong contender for the bumper song for this <laughs> yeah amazing um i suppose we'll, we'll talk about it as as we go on but uh as a villain chris what did you think of dk's introduction leading into this first race here i think they just kind of nailed the character from the get-go as the main antagonist of this eventual movie and that he was sort of the, oh, look at me, I'm really hot shit at this one thing that I do. But then as you find out later on, it's kind of just to make up for the fact that he's sort of inept at pretty much everything else. It's like yeah. a DD character that put all his points into one stat and then everything <laughs> else is just dog shit. Mm-hmm. And of course, he, as you go on the campaign, you end up with more roles on the categories that you're dog shit at. So you're not going to be as effective unfortunately which yeah plays its hands into the movie here but i do want to talk specifically about this first race that they have which is again it's not your 10 second race your drag goes straight across the line maybe an odd turn here and there it is very much the okay let's introduce you to what drifting is and sean having no idea what the fuck he's doing uh he gets a car from a certain somebody that uh we eventually find out is han uh, during this whole process who just decides well i mean he kind of had the boss of the challenges so i want to see what he's got kind of thing and sean just proceeds to like get the literal kick the shit out of himself in the process of trying to yeah. do these turns and failing miserably um and i think because like han is such a like a cool and uh oh. well thought out like real kind of uh, thinker of a character I very much buy into the idea that like he knew that if he loaned the car to Sean who he appreciated his moxie but would probably fuck up the car that he would then have this new guy beholden to him like mm-hmm. I think all that is very much factored in to Han's consideration here. But, but can it, I just it, it, how slick? But sorry, I was just say how fucking slick is Han, right? All these other people are like trying to be cool, posturing or whatever. Han's just chilling on the hood of a car. He's got like a bag of M and M's or something. You know, like how Brad Pitt is always eating in movies, and Han's yeah. just like you know. Every scene of him, you see him, he's just chucking a different M- like colored M&M into his mouth or whatever. And then there's a scene when everyone's packing into the elevators like to see where the race is. And then like everyone gets jammed into the elevators, even Twinkie just, and shit. 
And then you see Han in his elevator solo. And as the doors close, he chucks another M&M into his mouth. And I was like, this is the slickest motherfucker I've ever seen in my life right now. I just instant love for Han straight away. I think that's one of the main takeaways for, I think, a lot of people out of Tokyo Drift is that even if the movie wasn't to their fancy, they're like, okay, we like Han enough to where we would be okay with seeing him in the sequels. And lo and behold, we did get a lot of that. But as we're on the topic here still of that first race in Tokyo Drift, uh, one of the interesting bits that they had during uh, that race as DK was drifting around and Sean was stumbling and bumbling his way through it, there was one particular Easter egg there that really caught my eye personally, which was uh, Toyota AE86 Sprinter Torano or the uh, 86, the Hachiroku car uh, that is infamously uh, tied in with Keiichi Tsuchiya, who is the real-life drift gang who did some stunt drifting for the movie, as well as he had a cameo later on in the movie as one of the two fishermen while uh, Sean was learning how to drift in the open course that they eventually get into in the middle of the movie there. I love that. But, that, that would have popped like 0.1% of people that watched this movie. It's like, oh, that's... Exactly, it's exactly uh, that bit of reference there. And for me personally, as someone who had seen the initial D series beforehand, where the uh, it, where the 86 is like the main character car of that entire series. And it is like Tsuchiya's like trademark car that he raced with for so many years. It mm. was just a nice couple of touches there as a whole. Um, mm. Again, for people who may have enjoyed this particular uh, movie compared to like the previous two or anything like that if you have not seen the initial d series just take some time out of your day to go out and uh, seek that because it's pretty much kind of what you get with this movie where it's just a lot of drift related downhill uphill sort of racing and it's fun it's definitely like a huge look into like japanese car culture mountain courses everything in between yeah although i would say my one complaint with this movie soundtrack because for as much as they nailed like the west, uh, the sort of like westerner portion of like electronic and a couple of different genres onto it, the lack of Eurobeat was just disturbing, especially for the type of racing that they were doing in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you dropped that Eurobeat remix in the chat earlier to the the Teriyaki Boys song, and I was that I was into it, man. I could <laughs> I could I could jam to that shit permanently. It was awesome. Um, yeah, the initial D soundtrack is purely like Eurobeat as well too. So there's some really good songs off of that. that it's um fit in the racing side. I found it funny that like the Neptunes produced the the song as well. The um the 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 Teriyaki Boys song. Who, by the yeah. way, Teriyaki Boys debut album is called Beef or Chicken, which really, mm-hmm. when I think about Teriyaki, is the question I ask myself every single time. <laughs> but it doesn't actually get more perfect than that. Branding, my friend. Branding it really is. So uh, as you alluded to, Chris, uh, they have this first drift and because he's never done it before, never really been exposed to it, Sean fucks up the car and then becomes basically indebted to Han, who whose car he had been loaned to him. Uh, so then we see uh, kind of uh, Han pick him up, uh, Sean has to go driving around and essentially collecting money that is owed to Han. And this results the hilari- in... Yeah, the hilarious part of it too is that beforehand, as he's walking away from the initial race, Han's just like, uh, meet me tomorrow, don't leave the country. 
yeah. <laughs> and you you believe in that moment that Han could find him without even really trying that hard. Um yeah. so yeah, they meet up and they go to uh what is a very like light and comedic scene for for this uh franchise which is him going into the the uh, the public baths to collect money off the world's most enormous man yep you just knew like there's no western movie that goes to japan without some sort of sumo reference right and here we have it yeah this dude gets up out of the the bath and he keeps getting up (laughs) and it's just this (laughs) man mountain and then there's this like smash cut him being hoofed out the door onto the road and han is just like gently leaning against the car again with another bag of something chewing away because like again as part of the han calculation he's like I, I fully buy into that he thought it'd be really funny to go to this guy first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the real kind of like important point for the scene driving the movie forward is that this is part of Sean then badgering Han to teach him how to drift. Uh, and this is something I was kind of worried, uh, you know, uh, when I came back to watch this film as an adult the first time I did it, that I was like, oh, is this going to fall into, again, another trope of uh, Japan and the portrayal of Asian people in cinema, where it's going to be like the, the sensei trope, like the wise older teacher imparting onto him. And I was like, please don't play it like that. And I don't think they did. I think they skirted no. close to the sun on us because like it definitely in that moment of him kind of pestering please teach me your tricks and things like that i'm like oh please but no it doesn't go there it it kind of like just goes into pretty entertaining montage footage of like han and the gang hanging out as sean uh tries and fails tries again fails better uh at learning how to drift uh by the way there's a scene like in between where um he gets home and his the second he walks through the door his dad just goes to him, have you been racing? Like, um, how the hell does he know? You know, yeah. like when... It's um, like, you know, when a kid comes home after drinking, it's like, I smell gasoline on your breath, yeah. son. <laughs> like, can he smell the rubber burnt into his yeah. clothes or something? Yeah, I, uh, the, my God, yeah, that's NOS whole... on your ass. Yes. <laughs> Let me look at your peoples. Have you been mainlining mm. kerosene again? Just yes, strange. They have the prototypical, like, teenage father, son, the teenage son and father sort of confrontation there for a little bit. It's like, you better not be racing again or I'll kick you out of, out of this roof and you have nowhere else to go and blah, blah, blah. But then it's like, Han's just like, nah, you're still coming with me regardless. I don't even care anymore. Yeah. Just whatever. But I do think that having Han be as smooth as he is and then having that side crew that, you know, Han's crew with them as well, just serving as the comedic relief in terms yeah. of like, oh, look at this fucking American just screwing everything up. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to, and then the fisherman, as I mentioned, the one cameo already, then the other one just commenting on like how shit this yeah. game was. Yeah. It was phenomenal. Uh, it made for a very lighthearted training montage yeah. to say I, the least. I that. also love around this in between scene with his dad as well, is where we start to see uh, what I'm calling Chekhov's car where we get the first look at, you know, this car that apparently the father has always had that he's finally trying to fix up coincidentally around the time that the son is here. Uh, I wonder if that car will come back later in the movie. Hmm. There's, there's, There's also a scene where like Han leads him to a garage, which is in like the back of a club. And like they go through the first couple of rooms and then Han enters a room where 
I can only describe him as the smoothest man in the universe because the second he walks through the door, like two women start trying to make out with him immediately. <laughs> like they just throw themselves at him. And then he, t- he turns around and says something to him like, and there's two different women like arm in arm with him. And I was like, holy shit, man, this Han guy. How can you <laughs> yeah. not love him? Because mm-hmm. so we... this was also, I think, when they went to meet, I think, DK as well in the yeah. process. And when Han mentioned that he's the one doing the uh, driving for Han at this point to like yeah. pay him back for the car and stuff like that. Mm. Um, also, the other funny part when Han pointed out, careful, ladies, he's underage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who are you fucking? No, kidding, he's Han? forty. <laughs> he's forty. What are you talking about? And this old guy here. Um, <laughs> So we also have a red hot at this point. Jesus. Yeah. So we have the training. We have DK being aware that 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 Sean is doing the the kind of driving for Han. But then we have the continued arc of um, Sean and Neela and the kind of instigating incident that leads to things ramping up as we get into the final act of this film is essentially Sean making his move on Neela and this causing DK to beat the shit out of. Sean, and that's kind of what sets all the stuff in motion uh, heading towards the end of... Yeah there's, uh, yeah, there's that aspect, and then there's also the aspect where Han finds out, thanks to... Or not Han, excuse me, DK finds out, because at one point he does have a meeting with his uncle, who turns out to be uh, a Yakuza, and yeah. of course, Shani Chiba is the one so, playing him. I tell you, just playing nice the touch. coolest man on earth. By the way, the the, the opening scene we see him like the yakuza boss, his uncle. He dressed almost exactly like Richard Attenborough in Jurassic Park, like mm-hmm. he's wearing like the tan suit and like the explorer hat and everything. Yeah. He's about two degrees well, away from Ivory Dealer. Yes, like, you know, he's dressed. <laughs> but, Listen, uh, that man is probably a patriarch of his family. He's got to set yeah. the example for the rest of his boys. Yeah. So, like, no. Uh-huh. That's the yeah, only yeah. thing that was missing was the freeze frame and explaining that he's part of a Tojo clan yes, subsidiary. That is exactly what <laughs> to go. That is, if there was one thing I could go and fix and post on hindsight, it would be just that, just introducing yeah. him as such. But you also kind of get a, a bit about Takashi just being like, he's not as much hot shit as he likes to make everyone think that he is there's like that scene with his uncle i find it interesting because i think and we'll get to the ranking of him as a villain at the end here but i think he's the most interesting villain in as much as you get this little insight into the way he is is because of that kind of pressure of like who his relative is and that feeling that he's got to make this stamp uh himself and not let him down you know Mm -hmm. And like a lot of the way he acts out and why he is, is not only because of the environment he was brought up in, but because of the pressures of becoming the man he's supposed to be, which I thought was like weirdly nuanced for, you know, the two Mm -hmm. films that had come before this in the franchise. It Um, it didn't get explored in any other way that I think a more serious franchise would have taken this sort of direction, but there were some good hints there Mm. to that at least. And I do think that, it also played well into the character to be, you know, this guy that pretends that he's got everything under control, but then his uncle taking one quick look at his books is going, yeah, your partner, Han, he's been like swiping half of your shit and you didn't yeah. notice it, which just incenses him on top of the Sean and Neela stuff yeah. that so, has been happening throughout the movie. Yeah, so that stuff all builds to a head and this causes DK to make a beeline towards Han's place 
beat the shit out of Sean. And um, I think it's it's Twinkie, is it? Creates the distractions so that they can yeah. get out of there. Yeah, but I, I just want to mention, like, bef- the, the last thing he says to him before he, like, shoots off to go kick the shit out of him is he says, there's an old saying, for want of a nail, the horseshoe was lost. For want of a horseshoe, the steed was lost. For want of a steed, the message was not delivered. For want of an undelivered message, the war was lost. And then looks at him really like tensely in the eyes. And then from conveyance of that, you know, oh, he's going to go beat the shit out of him now. And I have absolutely no idea what any of that was fucking talking about (laughs) whatsoever. But it was some cool shit. It was some cool shit. And, you know, it was the closest you get to like that sensei paradox thing that you were talking about earlier where you don't want to go too far in that direction. But because it was kind of like from a Yakuza posture, like a wannabe Yakuza kid, it kind of made sense to me that that's with something he would say to him. Um, so essentially then, um, there's a chase sequence, which is pretty cool. And it leads That's to the best one... scene of the movie. I yes. think the chase sequence. We'll talk yeah. about the actual uh, chase. Actually, no, we'll do that now. So what did you think of the chase, Jack? Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was the best scene in the movie. I thought the fucking driving in this was insane. Like the precision pinpoint weaving in and out of traffic. Like you might look at it and go, oh, like the drifting is unnecessary. Or I don't care. It looks yeah. so goddamn cool when they were like si- like side drifting through traffic mm-hmm. and around cars and actually and doing it. You know. What I oh mean? yeah, yeah, like exactly. it's it's all practical. You can tell it's practical. The, the I think of all of the movies, the actual driving in this movie might be the best in the yeah. franchise. Yeah, and it's just having the amount of stunt drivers that they did that were famous for doing this stuff. I mm-hmm. mean, you mentioned the uh, Such. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned already uh, the original Drift King uh, being as part of this, you know, consulting as well as doing the stunt driving as well but i mean they got some of the best stunt drivers and like rally uh race drivers in the world to kind of pull this off and they did it brilliantly in the scene yeah it was, it was just awesome. so just for it worked it worked really well i know they had to do certain effects for like the speeds of shibuya and stuff with particular shots and things like that but the driving being practical kind of just makes everything else i think a whole lot easier on the effects side of the fence so and then we have like at the you know towards the climax of the chase we have something that's like it's an important moment in the movie but it turns out to be maybe the single most consequential event in the entire series that being the the t-boning of and explosion of han yeah um which as we all know now was done by jason statham yeah <laughs> and again you look at that and it's like this is the most ham-handed retcon of the lot because it's like there doesn't seem like a lot of time for that whole scene that we see later with statham to play out um but yeah it, it, it's like when you see it it's like it's such a good punch because he's like he's set up to be like the coolest character in the whole movie you think oh. he's one of these guys he's always gonna just about escape trouble yeah, I, I was, I was the first time I saw it, I was gutted. I was like, well, this is the most interesting guy in the movie. I don't care about this sort of like 30 year old guy from Alabama or any of that shit or whether he gets the girl or not. I just want Han to do everything. He's so yeah. cool. And yeah, it was, it, it was gutting. It really was going. Yeah. It was a situation um, where, like, okay, I get what you're doing, what they're doing to get Sean to eventually like get some sort of like finality for a mentor passing away as sudden as that happened but in the same vein it's almost like 
a couple of years later, they re realized, oh, wait, we definitely made a mistake with this. So uh, let's work all of these other movies to be before this one. Yeah. To, just to make sure we can get Han there, you know, yeah. make sure and it's then, on screen. And then none of us have seen... Uh like fast no. nine yet or f9 yeah, it's rather, coming out so. the week we record this it's coming out yeah mm -hmm. and then we'll see what they do with that uh and how they reintroduce Han. yeah i i i have i've heard from a couple of people that it's just like it's a very appropriate fast and furious way of doing it so i'm excited um yeah because there's some absolute hog shit that lead into another one they had to do in the next movie we're going to yeah. talk about too yeah oh yeah so um then we get kind of, you know, this whole shocking incident that he doesn't make it to Han on time, gives him a lot of perspective. He kind of makes amends with his dad. They Don't they fix up the car together um, yeah. at some point? And uh, then we get, there's an armed standoff where Sean and his dad are, are facing down uh, DK's thugs. And this leads to the most pro wrestling moment maybe so far in the three movies where they have a loser leaves town match. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. One race and the loser leaves Tokyo. Uh, One that was set up, in fact, by Sean going to Sonny Chiba himself and going, hey, man, this whole thing's kind of been messed up between me and your nephew and stuff like that. And I just want to settle it. Let's just do like a race. And he's like, what makes you think you can just come over here, flash some money and tell me what I'm supposed to let you all do? And just like, look, man. Uh, I mean, it's what a race doesn't get it over with. And then, of course, DK has to open his mouth saying, like, I've beaten his ass once already. What's the point of this? And the uncle going, oh, so you've beaten his ass before. Hmm, I don't see why you can't do it again then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. So to a captive audience of people and cool Yakuza uncle. Uh... I, I honestly, and in that scene, I feel like Sonny Chiba, the reason... He's letting him do the races because he's like, I think he's going to lose and this is going to teach him a lesson, yeah. essentially. Yeah, to, to humble him. Yeah. Um, is the, is, seems to be the kind of message going on here. And we have our, uh, our race then where we have the good guy overcome the odds where, you know, at first there's like the hallmarks of the early race in the movie where he's too brash. He, he's not thinking he's letting his emotions rule him and he's losing, but then he shows off the skills he's developed, the things Han imparted to him and he pulls out the, the victory, uh, but he uses his dad's car to do it. Yeah. Chekhov's car. Yep. Um, While and... everyone watches on 2006 uh, cell phones yeah. as well, yeah. like the Which... with the little screens and shit. Loved yeah, it. The little, I mean, yeah, the four, that 4G technology in 2013, even with, you know, butt-ass phones, just doing god's work right yeah. there and then good times and um so yeah we have shauna's victorious um everybody's happy yakuza uncle chastises dk everything ends happily i mean his ever. car is kind of like sort of fucking wrecked at this point where yeah. he almost yep. died falling off a mountain kind yeah. of thing but and again mountain racing which is pretty much like a huge thing within japanese like car racing mm -hmm. culture and stuff and very well done in terms of the yeah. scene i think the chase scene, scene does still edge it out a little bit more just yeah. because of the amount of cars and this uh, action involved, but the one-on-one -on -one final race was equally as good in my opinion. The, the, the framing was really good. It had a big it. fight feel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like exactly. 
the way they frame it, like the angles they get of the guys in the cars and stuff, and like the the shots, I think it's the best kind of scene for capturing like the emotion of the race and what it means to the mm-hmm. two guys in it. Um, I think I just yeah, it was very well directed, mm-hmm. but yeah, it hasn't got that that same visual pop as the the chase mm-hmm. scene, I would say. Yeah, and uh, the biggest thing about directing too. Let's just keep this in mind. This was the first. Justin, Justin Lin. Lin. Yeah, I, I have we not series. mentioned Justin Lin yet? I'm I'm furious. I, I was myself. kind of waiting, I was kind of waiting for uh sort of a segue to go into that, but yeah, this is his first foray into the franchise, and I think that even though in terms of gross amount, it may have not made anywhere near as much as the entries before or after, it still was received, I think, well enough to where they're like, okay, Justin, we'll let you run with another one of these, see where it goes, and then just kind of let him take the reins there for a long time. Yep. And then uh, final scene, that's Dom Toretto's music. Yeah, this is it. Preceding uh, Marvel <clears throat> post credit scenes by two full years. Uh, we have a post credit scene where, you know, he's uh, Sean is living life large in a... He's the Drift King now. He he's the, the new King. Drift King. He is the new Drift King. Twinkie's there. They're having a great time. And who pulls up to check out the new hotshot on the Tokyo scene? Only Dom Toretto. Yeah. Uh, mentioning uh, that the... Han was part of his family. Mm-hmm. Glass breaks. Too. Just fantastic because it's like... Initially, Twinkie's just like, hey, I've been this guy over here won a race and drift game. He's been beating guys all over Asia over the last couple of weeks. And then Sean's just like, nah, not tonight, man. And it's just kind of that serious stone is just like, he's setting you hot. And yeah. then it's just like, yeah. sort of dro- the sort of drop where you go from like the sort of like electronica music in the back- background to bundle arrow starting to play. By God, that, that's that's Dom Toretto's music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so perfect. And it blows my mind. Father that's... has come back to the franchise, even in the cameo series. It only took uh, yeah. Universal giving him the entirety of Riddick to do yeah. so, but he's back, baby. But this is the thing, and like the thing that blows my mind is still at this stage, they didn't have an idea for it to be a continuing franchise. It wasn't really until like the development of four and five where there was like, oh, this thing has legs to keep going. Um, so it's incredible that this was just kind of supposed to be a little treat that they didn't necessarily think they were going to follow up on in any serious way, but they fucking did it and it was great. And now that we have all these films, like it feels like this is the start of it where it wasn't like in the behind the scenes terms, it wasn't really the start of the whole what these films would become yet. I, even though like, again, in many ways, in hindsight, this might be the most important movie. Yeah. It's setting a table. And it's, it's, and, and it's weird that like it fits in between six and seven. Um, but like at the time nobody kind of knew that. So yeah. it sort of made like the 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 Vin Diesel turning up at the end and then it going straight into the next movie and stuff, it felt so huge. Mm. It felt like people had kind of maybe excuse the pun, drifted away a little <laughs> bit after Too Fast, Too Furious, and maybe weren't like super into the culture of this movie, like Chris was saying before. Um, but everyone like what made me watch this movie and the buzz on the internet was a Vin turning up at the end of this movie and bringing it back in and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 that got me interested that I was like, okay, cool. Like yeah, Vin Diesel coming back to this. I'll give that, I'll check this out. So 
finally, before we move on to our next movie, something that we've kind of been thinking about as we've been going along is that ranking of villains. And for you guys, where does Takashi the Drift King sit on the ranking of Fast and Furious villains so far? We'll go to Chris first. Hmm. I'd say for me, out of the bunch, just because technically with the first movie, you sort of had, I guess, Dom technically was the big bad after all, and Paul Walker was the baby face going into that ending stretch there. So I'd still say that he gets the number one credit on that, but I would put so far into this, DK would be number two out of the three movies we've gone through Mm. so far, just in the fact that it was a more nuanced and very flawed kind of villain, but still one that was very good at the one thing that he specialized in that happened to be what the hero had to overcome. So yeah. he, he served his purpose in that regard. And then we don't talk about uh, why uh, uh, Tony Montana from the second movie. At, at yeah, let's, point. He let's is the bottom that. tier, I think, for, like, tier, yeah. the rema- for the remainder of these rankings. He's going to be dead last. Yeah, yeah. Time, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd kind of agree with that. I'd say like no, number two, uh, in terms of like interesting character, maybe number one, because there's that depth to him we talked about that's more implied than explored, but it's still there, you know? Uh, what about you, Jack? Yeah, I, I would go along with that assessment. I, I did really like TK. I think if we get to include uh, Sonny Chiba in there as well, um, then I think as a pair, like as a duo, like that's a pretty cool combination of two dudes um and for me yeah it's they're not going to be dom because yeah i mean like dom is pretty much the eternal Dom's rock dom. of yeah he's just dom and he like he's, he's the eternal rock of the franchise but um, <laughs> dom in it <laughs> just dom in it yeah you know as uh yeah uh, like i think i i really i really did like it i like the dynamic between between the uncle and uh the the wannabe kind of entry level yakuza kid and all of the pressure that he fought and just Mm. you even though like chris said they didn't (laughs) chris multisanti vibes yeah (laughs) but like even though chris said they didn't explore it too well which is which is totally true i do think that like it's quite easy to read into the narrative understanding exactly why he is the way he is what has got him to this position why he's so smug and then like why his uncle kind of lets all this stuff play out the way he does and it just it's a it's a very subtly done thing that um i think maybe if they'd added like maybe five ten minutes in and and just explained it a little bit better like maybe people would have enjoyed it more but you can see what they're trying to do and i think what they're trying to do is pretty good so on, on yeah a thumbs up for me um i would just say i have like two or three more bullet points that i can just like wanted to speed through because they hit them, hit them me. quick so we can get out of here for this one and take our little intermission yep okay so number so two so two of them are both about twinkie one of them is at one point we're talking about out of date references at one point he's selling flavor flavor clocks and chains <laughs> which i was just it just blew my mind what's going on uh, there's another point where twinkie is actually like a really great looking inside forward playing football in a court in tokyo and yeah, like that is, yeah yeah mm-hmm. and that like that's just never mentioned again like he's he's really awesome um yeah. and yeah uh just uh yeah and and the last one is the the explosion that kills han you know the big deal about it and stuff you do not actually see han blow up yeah so very important i think that and that's why i wanted to end on that bullet point because when you uh, when you think about it, it cuts away and we see an explosion of a car. We don't see Han explode. Well, 
wasn't that the the idea that you, you we heard later is that um Justin Lin deliberately didn't want to visually kill him off because he thought there was mm. a way he could yes. use that character mm. again. Yeah. Even though he had no guarantee that he would get to, that he still it didn't was, want to leave that door it, open. It was a very conscious and smart choice for sure, because as it turns out, we sort of do get that, which yeah. will, will knock off later down the line. I did want to yeah, make yeah. a note as well too, that uh, I did like Mila's purpose within the story as well. Like I get the whole romantic thing between her and Sean was sort of an underdeveloped aspect yeah. of this movie as well. And more so like a lot of implications, not so much shown in practice, but I also liked her dynamic with Takashi as well too. And the <laughs> short backstory of the fact that it's like her and I guess her mother had nowhere to go kind of thing. And then yeah. they got adopted into their side of the family. And it's sort of like she owes DK sort of like, servitude in a way but then it's kind of like at the same time like yeah that's really fucked up dude as one of i think like three women with dialogue in this whole movie i think they did they actually rounded out that character a lot more than i would have expected them to do and and the fact that she was good at the drifting shit too like on top of it as well was another Mm. okay yeah at least they're, they're giving other people something other than just like Romantic interest or arch rival, that sort of thing. It, it adds Nuance a bit more stakes as well because it kind of feels like the final battle isn't just over like the honor of Han, but it's also a bit for Neela's soul. Like he's trying to win her away from like this horrible, like almost sort of indentured servitude just because of, you know, things that happened in her life up to that point. Um, and yeah, by like winning that, it's like symbolic, I think, for Neela that the Chorn takes DK down a peg or two. And yeah, uh, yeah she, mm-hmm. she's able to to get out from underneath the clutches of him and his family. Yeah, right. and, come out, and come out of sort of acknowledging that at the end, too, by just letting her go accordingly. Yeah, yeah. Too. yeah, that, that yeah. that's it. That's the, that's the thing I really like is it was just like, no, like because of the whole and it's it feels like a very kind of Japanese story trope of like, the villains, when they go down, they go down with honor in this movie. And I like that quite a lot. Yeah. Um, right. With Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift out of the way, we'll be back with our next film after this brief musical interlude. Una sacudida a mis salidas La cima de un beso en un brinco suicida Su fuente de energía cautiva mi Welcome back. Our second film to talk about today is uh, Fast and Furious. The fourth film in the franchise. We're now in wacky timeline land uh, where uh, all these events are happening prior to Tokyo Drift. Um, in unspecified <laughs> points uh, in, in human history, I guess, in Fast and the Furious world. Uh, this movie came out March 12th, 2009. It's 107 minutes long on a budget of 85 million, the exact same as uh, Tokyo Drift. However, this one grossed 360.3 million dollar dues at the box office, uh, which is quite impressive. Um, also, the Rotten Tomatoes score for this one um, we have a critical score of 28. 
Oh, that has to be the low point for the franchise. Uh, well, we're going to find out, but surely it is based on what's to come. Um, yeah. But a an audience rating of 67. So it's the second highest for the audience, but the lowest for the critics, hmm. uh, which Again, is interesting. Just full-fledged proof that the Venfather is a draw in this territory. Damn we have right. missed him dearly. Top so tier. It is good it is good to finally have the top baby face in this yeah. entire company back in the fold. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Jack, what was happening in the world in March of 2009? Oh, so, so funnily enough, it was like, it was, the premiere was March 2009, but the actual release of the movie was April. Yeah. So my factor from April. So, you know, if anyone's playing along at home and Googling, uh, oh, Jack's wrong on this one. I just thought I'd, I'd throw that one out there for you. But, uh, so number one in America was Right Round by Flo Rida, uh, huh. WWE Stan himself, uh, which I basically just know as that hangover Your- ass song. <laughs> Eurovision's own Flo Rida. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Was it San Marino? Yeah. He was with? Yeah. Uh, uh yeah i feel like no one made as much of a big deal about how fucking weird that was but yeah flow rider right round uh song from the soundtrack of a hangover although i think i think the hangover was out either later that year or the next year um which was then overtaken the next week by poker face um which was actually that just number des- one. that just destroyed as yep. number one it was number one in the uk before it was number one in the us which i think is quite odd um, yeah. But yeah, then it went on. It was like number one for a month. Um, but the rest of the rest of 2009, from like Poker Face to like late October, was just two songs by the Black Eyed Peas, uh, which was like let's get it started. And then like um, I- I've got a feeling for like basically the whole of the summer. Those oh, that, oh, yeah. every time I hear, I've got a feeling I want to tear my ears off. That, that's yeah. That sounds like 2009. Yeah. yeah, which, I, yeah. I, I, I'll tie this into our last film where at the 2008 edition of Oxygen, so the year before this, <laughs> the opening day uh, act on the main stage as I was walking in was one Lady Gaga. Wow. <laughs> because I think either Just Dance had just come out that summer or was just about to, because that was the first one where she like it went big and then Poker Face was another level. Yeah. So Poker, it was like Poker Face. Just, uh, Is that not... like her most iconic song? I, I can't think that she's had a bigger song than that. Yeah. I mean, Just Dance kind of was fairly big in its own right there for yeah. a while. And I, I, Poker I, Face probably is like. On the merits the of just the songs, I prefer it to Poker Face as well. <laughs> See, I prefer Poker Face. Yeah. I just think the beat of Poker Face is better than the Just Dance. Like that's fair. Yeah, no, I, no, no. It's, 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 I think it's a personal preference thing. I, it's she's, just, some, yeah, she's someone that because, uh, like, it was so overplayed in college. It was years later before I actually appreciated what a great pop singer she was. Oh, because it was, yeah. it was just so. You know, when something is so inescapable that you just tune it out. Mm. So it was years. It was kind of like a lot of like mid 2000s emo music I tuned out when I was in school just because I couldn't escape it and it was years later I came back and reappraised a lot of stuff I I totally think I do that and I I don't know if Chris you were you would like co-sign this but the bunch of stuff that that was like played from when I was like 11 12 to when I was like 20 that I absolutely hated I've since listened to in the last five Mm. years of my life and I don't hate it and I don't know if it's because I link it back to that time in my life and it makes me remember what part of my life but yeah. I, I don't I wouldn't say that I like it. 
but it just it doesn't piss me off as much as it did at the time like a a band i think of that i i like quite a lot now that i just didn't i deliberately tried not to have time for because i had tarred them with the same brush as the mid-2000s emo i tried to avoid is paramore Mm. do you know i mean i just refused to give paramore any time for for many years and then i came back when i was around the time after laughter came out and i reappraised them as like they're not my favorite band by any stretch of the imagination but i I I like a lot of the singles and stuff to listen to that she's a very talented singer you know and they they write Mm -hmm. some really really good tunes but anyway speaking of stuff that's really good fast and furious uh this is this is jack's least favorite in the franchise that was my least favorite as well it's your least favorite between that and too fast it's yeah those are the those are the two Uh, and i think like it comes down to like individual preference again tf tf like has tyrese and luda so any film that has luda for me is a notch above. I'm sorry. Yeah. I love you know, Big Dom Toretto as much yeah. as the next guy, but Luda. The only thing is the guy. The only thing for me that would like make me think about maybe putting Too Fast, Too Furious higher on my list than this is um uh what is Luda. the line? Ejector seat bitch. <laughs> Via con Dios bitch. Yeah. 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 That um, scene is class. Yeah. So In the ejector like, seat but, because Ejecto CO cousin. Yeah, yeah. This is my um this is my second least favorite. So I I, I prefer it marginally to uh Too Fast and Furious. And that is p- because of uh two scenes in this, one of which is right at the very start, and one of which is very close to the start of it, that are the kind of silly that I bought in for in the latter half of this franchise. Yeah. Um and I suppose we'll talk about it now. And that is the opening fuel tanker heist scene, I mean, which is just, like oh. uh, that just sets out the stall. This is like, for the most part, this is a fairly po faced entry. Like it's the least wacky apart from the first one. But the yeah. moments where it does get wacky, like the two bits in particular, I love so much. This scene right up there. We've got a fuel tanker heist on a very hilly terrain. Um, in the Dominican Republic. In the Dominican Republic. Uh, featuring Han. Yep. Who is just like, again, because now we have the perspective of like, we know about the timeline and stuff like this. I can only imagine coming in. Did any of you guys see this in the in the cinema? Like when it came out? Or was this I, a later? I, I saw, I caught it after it came out from the cinema. But when I saw Han, I was so goddamn confused i was yeah. like what and then that at that point i was like oh he didn't blow up in the car so he must have got out yeah. that's what i assumed that's what i was gonna say was that the same for you chris did you did you think there was weird timeline stuff or did you just think it was oh han's here he must have survived i i figured there was either a flashback of some kind or yeah. that there might have been like the survival and then just sean and the rest of that crew don't know anything about it they're still fucking around in tokyo at this point yeah, but, but the thing that made me feel like the most when I was watching this the first time that it might just be like a flat out reboot was the fact that the first scene of this is kind of identical to the first scene of the first movie but like instead yeah. of st- stealing the DVD VHS combi uh, recorders they're just stealing petrol um, which is it seems like an odd thing to do because I can't imagine petrol is particularly expensive in the Dominican Republic. So this is the this is the other thing that is worth bearing uh, in mind for this whole film is that 
Um, it serves two purposes. One, you're bringing back uh, Paul Walker and Vin Diesel to guarantee that box office moolah. And two, a lot of this movie's screenplay is focused on cleaning things up and setting the table for what's to come from five on. It's got to clear up a lot of loose ends, tie together why we've had three films so far that all of which seem completely disconnected from each other. Yes. Um, So weaving back in Vin and Paul, uh, Vin and Paul together in the movie and bringing Han in and like almost the prologue, as you say, for this movie um is important to do that i think a lot of fast and furious fans acknowledge even if it is their least favorite film that this film had to occur otherwise mm-hmm. you would have wasted half of five trying to clean everything up yeah it's an it, it always feels like an origin story for like the the rebirth of the franchise kind of thing like you, you probably this i don't know this th- part of me thinks you could probably do the plot line of this movie in like a 10 minute flashback scene at the start mm-hmm. of the film um, because there was actually there's like a little prequel thing, isn't there? Called like is it Los yeah, Bandidos or something? Exactly. Like that? Yeah, yeah, Los Bandoleros. And which Los it's Bandoleros. funny that you bring that up. The reason for that was the, the Vin Father and the crew, they wanted to shoot four and five at the same time and just get it all done. Okay, Peter Jackson style of like <laughs> cinematography and the like, but then Universals are like, well, you want to see how this next one does before we really like anything else in that episode but hey uh since you asked so nicely then how about you direct just like a 20 minute thing for yourself and your pals there and just uh, do some you know universe building you know that kind of shit that you actors do go for it yeah yeah that makes sense um uh, this first scene rules oh uh, my god it's 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 real good and it, it it's kind of like to me like the the first scenes in in these films have that sort of james bond style thing yeah where, like this he is, gets we're catching up with madness. james on a different adventure yeah exactly and and it's like the gang okay the gang that we know they're in the dominican republic they're all mm. about stealing petrol now and yeah like yeah. the whole freezing the trailers thing mm. and the truck driver like abandoning ship but making sure he saves yeah. this lizard and like the 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 power slide under the flaming rolling tanker. Oh my god! Incredible. Just sitting there, like staring at the tanker bouncing and rolling down the hill, and timing as Letty is screaming "Dom!" at him because she knows what he's going to do, and of course he does it perfectly because oh. Vin Diesel is indestructible. The Vin Father. Yeah. Um. It's it it's. It's so fun. And it, it Bond is a great comparison because there's a couple of things about this movie that are real Bond hallmarks that we, you know, that's one and we'll talk about another one later on. Um, but yeah, this opening scene is, is great. It's balls out. It's like, it is the most indicative of what they want to do with these films. Uh, mm. The rest of the film kind of mostly settles down. There's some good action and that in it, but it, I don't think it gets as wild. Uh, no for the rest of the movie as this it feels almost to me like this scene is kind of like Los Bandoleros almost like a proof of concept for what they can do and how this the, the audience will follow them along on whatever weird shit they want to do um but I wrote you know after this little prologue I wrote we kind of get like uh, little scenes that explain where everybody is catching you up so the first one is uh where Dom finds out Letty is dead yeah but like can we just stop on that for a second yeah. like he he see like so they like hook up or whatever at the beach after their successful petrol heist um and 
then he's staring at her in the bedroom and then like we're assuming that he just kind of like lets her go kind of walks away from her right uh and then he gets a call to say that she's dead and we don't find out how or why there doesn't seem to be any sort of body or anything going on it's just like oh no she's dead uh you should come yeah Yeah, she's she's dead for reals i'm like what what the what so our, our, our status updates the and they come this. they come thick and fast are Letty is dead. Oh, sorry, no, it goes Vin is in exile, basically. Yep. Uh, Letty is dead. Brian is back with the FBI. Yeah. And then the final revelation in this series within the first 15 or 20 minutes is that Dom Toretto is Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The most my, my, inc- my man, my man's got the early copy of Arkham Asylum decided he was gonna be the batman in detective mode at the, all times the most incredible scene so far in these films where he with the power of his mind recreates just by looking at isn't there like one skid on the ground one and he looks at it and like yep. traces of like nitro yeah. like a ground. tiny bit of it like I really thought, because yeah. I, I couldn't remember too well, but I thought he was going to taste it as well. Yeah. Did you be like, oh, I know what this is? <laughs> like, so he not only is able to recreate how the crash must have happened in his head, but somehow from the skid mark, he is able to divine the silhouetted figure of who must have shot her, even yep. though her being shot is not to this point mentioned. <laughs> yep. I actually have a bullet point here that says Dom is a better cop than all the cops who cop. Yeah. Um, because he just is it's yeah. like it's taken bright by the way any of the scenes where brian is around those fbi douchebags like that is the, yeah. those are the worst parts of the movie for me those like they all feel dra- like drab like yeah. the, the the place is horrible it's like dark the, and the, glassy the, and yeah the, it, it's the definitely good one yeah the only one good one of those was when the one uh stansky guy like decided to try to be a douche and like talked to him about like don't you ever like do sh- stuff regarding my witness and Brian just like busts him, smash him yeah just it just grabs and smashes him into a wall yeah and and then the captain comes over and you think it's going to be like give me a gun and your badge but he's not he's just like oh, it's a police department this happens all the time yeah yeah, yeah get your shit together get your shit together yeah you're on my floor feds are always just hoofing guys faces into walls around yeah. here um when you so, realize brian's back with the fbi as well i i my initial thought was boo like just yeah. i'm so sad i'm like oh man but uh so here's the thing as well like i think that that batman scene it's so incredible and it needs to yeah. be seen to be believed um in terms of setting your stall out for the rest of the franchise, this is your moment where from now on, you need to understand as a viewer of these movies that Dom is the best at everything. He is a superhero (laughs) and you should treat him as such. It's also one of two really unnecessary, like CGI heavy moments over reality in this movie that just Mm. don't make a lot of sense to me. And we'll get to the second one in a little bit. Yeah. yeah. It so, was a way in which unfortunately they had to explain like how Dom kind of eventually finds the guy that provided the uh, nitro for the car that eventually like helped mm-hmm. kill his girlfriend and stuff. And it's just like rather than trying to write like, two or three different scenes of just him poking around and asking questions, they just decided, you know what? Fuck it, he's Batman now. Yeah. So yep. that is I, I think one of the best ideas they had that they didn't execute very well in this was I liked the idea of a movie that is structured around um O'Connor and Toretto 
both following parallel tracks to get them to this Braga character. Yeah. The and first I, half of the movie is law and order, essentially. Yeah. I would have really liked if they had stretched that out and kind of really kept the moment they reunite until like maybe the end of the second act. So that, you know, there's like this tension building of, you know, they're on a collision course. Yeah. And you know how they left it. Um, like, I'm not, I don't completely hate what they did after they reunited. There's some cool moments and stuff like that as they start to kind of like work through their stuff. But I think as a movie, I think it works better with the idea of, yeah, like you said, law and order, you have uh, O'Connor kind of going by the books to try and find Braga. You would have uh, Toretto obviously using his uh, incredible detective skills to do it. Um, and also at one point he nearly murders a man with a car engine which is pretty cool that scene and and i think you also would have had you would have been able to tell a more interesting story about why uh brian ends up coming back to dom's side if you can have like if you can have him trying to use all the by the book methods to pursue braga and he just keeps hitting brick walls and it's tempting him to go back you know to the Mm. old ways and maybe then he meets mia and that puts him closer to dom and he realizes that dom is on his trail or something like that uh they didn't have the nearly the patience to pull um pull that off whatsoever i don't think yeah, I, I kind of like it like, when you see Brian, even though it's quite early in the movie, the first time when when they bring Mia in, yeah. um, when they know Dom's back on the scene and that sort of scene of them two like reuniting and like her giving him like the full both barrels of like, you know, you're responsible for all this shit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of rather than the the curiosity side of him going more rallying back towards Dom's cause, it's like it's actually Mia who makes him feel really guilty and it kind of brings up all those old feelings again, like tumbling around his head. Um, and like, he's, he's just seen Dom hang a man out of a window and now he's seeing like confronted with his like ex-girlfriend and shit. And it just, it just confuses him and it puts yeah. him back into that sort of old place the, again. The moment where uh, Brian sees him hang the guy out the window and he runs up and he kind of comes in the door and says, Dom, don't turn. And Dom kind of half turns around. I was fully expecting yeah. a, a kind of, brother nero <laughs> like, <laughs> felt like. like you can't possibly see paul walker from the angle you're looking but you know okay mm-hmm. let's just go with it then yeah um, it's very much a situation too where that whole hanging the informant by the window where don gets the information his way and then brian gets the information another way and it leads to you know something that they do best which is racing so yeah. turns out turns out Braga's looking for new drivers to like continue his uh, heroin trafficking between the Mexico and the United States border. And four guys come in, guy who wins uh, gets the last driver spot there. And it's a Dom and Brian showdown. It's basically what it uh, boils down to. And it's a very good racing sequence there between the two. It was nice to see the two rivals go at it again. And I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I I, I was going to say I'm pretty sure that either very similar to or the same car choices they had from when they raced in that last race in the in the first movie. Yeah, very similar. With Dom, he had his modified 1970 Chevrolet Chevelle SS for the race, and then Brian took basically a 2002 Nissan Skyline, uh, and then he modified it with parts from another Skyline, and then a Nissan GTR 2007 model. Yep. so 
we got, you know, we get that race. We also get an introduction to another character that will be at the very least here for this entry and then the next one as well, Giselle Yashar, who is Gal Gadot's character in this case yeah. before she went on to do Wonder Woman for those who are more. I, 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 I'm not proud of this, but my bullet point for that just says Gal Gahot because my <laughs> word <laughs> she is spoken when she comes into this movie yeah. i had to say it like she, her screen like the one i first saw her like she just has a screen presence like i know a lot of people kind of rag on her because they think she's not a great actress this that and the other but this woman really has an incredible screen presence like not many actresses that i've seen in the past and, and I, I think that's what what works for her as wonder woman because she you, does just see she just catches the eye is it naturally. the delineation between movie star and actor yeah exactly yeah she looks like a star yeah yeah um but yeah, so we have the trial race because they're both trying to get in uh, like sort of undercover in different ways to get close to Braga so they yeah. can take him down in Brian's case to arrest him and and take down his his smuggling ring. The drug, yeah. The drug yeah. What did the you guys just wants to kill his ass? Which, yeah. yeah. What did you guys think of the weird like sort of satnav meeks video game graphics thing they had going weird, on during this it? first that just that was that's to me the second unnecessary use of like how much money did they spend to do the cgi on this where couldn't they just yeah. make the race look better? it also it also made no sense so when they did the trial race or uh, when they did the trial run and um you know you hear gal gadot doing the you know explaining you know you need to bear north but then at the end of all of her like directions and stuff like that she just says follow that guy yeah you know the guy who's like the lieutenant the arsehole um and it's like just follow that guy it's like you could have just said just follow that guy like the gps stuff is completely irrelevant as soon as they follow the guy that you can already see directly in front of you (laughs) Yeah, that yeah, that that Marcus was really Phoenix. odd. Yeah, Marcus Phoenix, I think, was the lieutenant. Yeah, <laughs> off the top of my head. Yeah, so, Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was basically a kind of just. I I think they wanted to give Gal Gadot something extra to do. Yeah, uh, they couldn't Which think of anything. Fair. All right. Um, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, what do we think of the climax of the race? I actually love the fact that it's like. It's Dom being the impatient one this time, and Brian's yeah. like, "Nope, gotcha this time." And then Dom's just like reverse Udo card and just bumps him off, and just to show the fact that it's like, whether it's once again the lesson is still the same here, even yeah. you know, four, you know, three movies later. Doesn't matter if it's by an inch or a mile, winning is winning. Yep, yeah. and I love that line. He's just like. Huh still a buster and yeah. i don't think i'd heard anyone refer to anyone else as a buster since no scrubs by tlc so there was yeah. a pop from me for that. <laughs> yeah there's definitely that there. yeah the so dom uh yeah dom being dom still a buster uh we have as well so yeah um we have a scene in here in between the trial race to get the job and the trial run with the arsehole guy. We have the uh, the kind of like the two of them sort of having a like a summit with Mia there. And this is where it comes out that Letty had been working for the FBI, which causes uh, Dom to pick up Brian and utterly demolish a, <laughs> a set of shelves with his body. And Jackknife power bombs him at one point yeah. as well. Indeed. Yeah. It, it should be noted that Brian was not trying to fight back specifically on yeah. this one year. They were more so trying to explain that 
the whole reason why Letty went undercover for the FBI was to get him part, get his ass yeah. part, so he could come back to Los Angeles. Yeah, and and it's another case of Dominic Toretto, world's greatest detective, because yeah. he just happens to notice a package, which he happens to open, switch on a phone, figure out that it was Letty's call the number in there which then rings by and like deduces all of this within the space of 30 seconds yeah. like I'm, it I'm makes it makes hank from breaking bad like who has this realization halfway through the last series and he's meant to be like a super cop look like an absolute asshole <laughs> the revelation <laughs> as well halfway through the last series while he's on the toilet having a shit he realizes who WW really is. Uh, yeah, like, and 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 Dominic Toretto is like putting all of this information together within the space of thirty look, seconds, and then is delivering a jackknife power bomb within the minute. Look, so it's between these Batman S deductions and the fact that he held an entire car engine with one hand. It should be noted during that whole attack scene on the mechanic to like find out where David Park was. I could be convinced that in the gap between his initial escape from Los Angeles into the Mexican border and the years that were spent, you know, doing high school friends, that he somehow found some sort of hyperbolic time chamber and just <laughs> trained his body and mind accordingly in there and came out as this superhero-esque figure that we have on Earth that needs every bit of his power levels to be up at this point to deal with the threats that eventually would come in the series. Yeah. Because, yeah, they get him all yeah. this deep shit. Yeah. This is just Son, the beginning. Son Goku Toretto over here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, so back to the, yeah, uh, when they do the actual uh, run with the drugs and Dom kind of is like, this is my chance. And he uh, opens his NOS can, sets the, the the cigarette lighter, blows up all the cars. Uh, but while they, like, he has a perfectly timed as well because he is the world's greatest everything that yep. he's kind of, he confronts the guy who he knows is the one that uh killed letty and he just admits it and say he does this this line to completely enrage dom where he says like do you remember her face because i don't um and they kind of go back to that recreated crime scene that dom had and the 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 silhouette is lifted and you see it was him with the gun on the scene yeah uh, that he it's um the, the total her it's very winter soldier mission report 1991 yeah. In the way that they do it, I thought like the, the first thing, I, like it just the whole thing was like a foreshadowing of like, you know, this thing happened in the past and it was this guy and, you know, I'm going to go crazy and try and take him out kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's done so well. It should but, be noted though, Dominic Toretto wouldn't have to have gone to these extremes if not for the fact that uh, Braga had instructed the, uh, his lieutenant in uh, Phoenix in this case to kill the drivers once this was all said and done. So there was that yeah. bit of, okay, so you're going to betray me. Okay, cool. I'm just going to blow up all of your cars. And then during the whole selection process too, because Dom won the race and won the rights to be like the last driver. And then Brian had to get one of the other guys arrested so he could take his spot in the process. So they have like that, as you mentioned, the, su- the, oh, the foot guy. And, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They have the heart to heart, but then there's also like the scene in which they're there in the club with the guy that we think is Braga's lieutenant, and they're talking about their uh, history together. And then Bra- uh, Dom explains that yeah, Brian used to date his sister, and then uh, the lieutenant going, "Well, you're a lucky man. 
you're still alive. Yeah. So it's just like nice, nice little Good. bits of character there between the dog, yeah. the Brahmin. Uh Dom and Brian dynamic was you know, very I think in and around that there's like three or four different scenes where they're drinking Corona as well. Yeah. It looked like Corona had supplied them with legitimately five thousand bottles for this movie yeah. because anytime you see a bottle, it is Corona. Um, um we also go. have so yeah, in the scene where there's the preposterous amount of explosion from Dom's car blowing up the rest of them. Uh conveniently 60 million dollars worth of the drugs is still intact for brian and dom to get away with um, in a humvee in a humvee which, you know like you don't see a lot of humvees in, in movies like this man like that is a gone in 60 seconds as car like that was i think that was the last time i saw one in a movie so instead of turning it into the feds they hide it because their idea is that they are going to lure braga out um with it and the feds do not take kindly to this they put brian on uh, administrative leave while uh, it's it's being investigated how he botched the thing so badly because it was like i think they wasn't it they set up the conditions as either you bring us the drugs and the the cartel or you bring us toretto because he was saying that yeah. like you know yeah his condition for doing it was if we get the cartel then you have to let Dom go. Hmm. Um, but because it was such a spectacular failure and he was telling them that Dom was in the wind and he didn't know where he was, um, he, like, uh, they, yeah, they they came, they brought the hammer down on him. But now it's, it's time. Um, we have the confrontation uh, with a guy who turns out to be a poser as it is revealed very melodramatically that the man who has been Braga's lieutenant this whole time was himself Braga. They pulled they pulled the Natalie Portman move. Yeah. It's, it was Natalie Portman all along yeah. who was to training me, Annie. To me, this was the other Bond woman because this is like Braga is the most Bond villain of the lot so far with the yep. bait and switch and the, oh, you never get to meet him and things like that. The yeah. air of mystique about him. Yep. Uh, all they're missing the is fake... very well played, Mr. Toretto. <laughs> I felt like the fake Braga was like a shot at Carter Verone from Too Fast, Too Furious yeah. because he was dressed and looked a very similar kind of way to like what you would expect a standard uh, drug mm. cartel guy. It was like they kind of put an advert out, like in because obviously they're in LA, they put like in, in, in casting looking for a fake drug dealer. And that <laughs> up. Which, when he realized that he was face to face with Dominic Toretto, he started to get real nervous about it. And again, the first person to figure it out was Dom, the king of detectives. Yeah, he's like, Oh, this guy's so, not Verone straight away. Oh, not Verone, sorry, not Braga. See, I, yeah. I already I, I just saw this guy as like an allegory <laughs> of Verone. They- so they track him down to, to Mexico, uh, Braga, and he's he's in a church. And... Yeah, can I just... I, he's paying for a blessing. Like, he gives a shitload of money yeah. to, a, to, a, my, to a, like a priest at a church. My, my, again, I think it's one of those things that is implied but not actually expanded upon or explained very well. I think it's one of those things where because it's one that's near their secret tunnel under the border... I wonder, is this a a priest and a church that's on the take as maybe a venue to yeah. launder money or prepare the drugs mm-hmm. for shipment normally? I think that I think that was exactly the implication there that yeah. he basically pays off the town as a means of like money laundering and preparing like the 
back and forth. You see, like that. Shipments there. Yeah, that's such a sensible read from both of you. What I like preferred that the only way that this guy feels like he was going to get any sort of religious salvation was if he just chucked a load of cash at it. Same like that could it could also be like his due diligence to God. It's just like, oh yeah. well, you know. I, yeah. I do terrible things as a drug lord, but hey, I pay the man of the Lord, so the Lord has to forgive me, right, guys? Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Big pre-Reformation vibes off that, yeah. Um, oh, we, we should probably mention, too, that at this point, Giselle's been coming on to Dominic Toretto throughout this whole movie, and then he yeah. saves her from, like, imminent death during that whole botched operation I, where the yeah. bait and switch happened as I, well. So I also, she's fully gaga for him at this I point. also gotta love how uh, Vin Diesel, and I'm not saying Don Toretto, I'm saying Vin Diesel is the only man on earth who's like, yeah, it's cool when James Bond gets the girl, but Dom Toretto is even cooler because he don't care. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, he just tells the girl like to basically fuck off, which is what yeah. he did. And but, this one, which I think for like he has, oh my god, rights people, they were probably yeah. big fans of this Don Toretto. Yeah. Movie he, I, Don I Don. gotta love the the hilarious flirting scene though, where they're I've got the line about, here, yeah, yeah, go on, <laughs> where they're talking about, and it's very much this is on the day as well for our UK and Ireland viewers that the um the Michael Owen sexts were released, and this is very shades of that, where it's the most awkward. Uh, shoehorned in we're talking about cars but I'm trying to refer to a woman in the same way sort of thing is horrendous what he tells her uh, when she's coming on to him is that he appreciates a fine body regardless of the make and then like looks her up and down and I was like okay that is the most James Bond ass line you ever get but this is where James Bond actually fucks somebody you're just gonna stand there and do nothing (laughs) about it which, which yeah. tells it's me like, that he says the line and he's like and basically he's just like and good day to you yeah it's <laughs> it tells me that he was kayfabing everyone and that because he is dom toretto yeah. king of or, detectives or he's just like no i'm sorry dom toretto respects women no 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 uh, dom toretto was kayfabing everyone it's like he had to show everybody that was watching the movie that he was mad about letty dying but deep down he knew dominic toretto super detective that Letty was still alive so Ooh. he could not sleep with gal Gahot in this situation that was how it so, was going down so up until this much, point oh, on, yeah, sorry, very much became, yeah no it's just very much became a situation where they were playing up the whole sort of like her trying to be sort of a syndrome seductress to an extent and trying to pursue Dom and then Dom kind of telling her specifically the kind of girl that he liked personally basically describing Letty to a yeah. T and then she's like oh that sounds nothing like me and then Dom's just like yeah you you know, know, goes, he, no no it's like that doesn't sound anything like me and he goes it ain't yeah um so yeah up until this point where they confront braga in the church you don't know you know brian wants to arrest him and dom had previously stated many times he wanted to kill him and you're coming into that scene in the church thinking well now that brian is kind of operating outside the law will he go vin's way or now that vin has more respect for brian and sees what Letty was trying to do with brian will he accede to brian and let him take him in so they confront him with a shotgun to the face by the way that shotgun it's got to be three times the size of a regular shotgun. As the shiniest shotgun I've seen in cinema, I think. Like it, it cuts into his face, and like the shotgun takes up two-thirds of the screen, I would say. like That um, angle is insane. So, uh, yeah, it, 
what they do is they 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 put him in the car and they're going to bring him back over the border because it's outside the jurisdiction. So they're going to bring him back over the border and and bring him to justice. Um, and we have the final chase scene then where uh, Braga's men are trying to uh, catch up with the guys and and get Braga back. And this brings them through. And I don't think we've spent enough time talking about the magical underground tunnel under the mountains that leads from Mexico to the United States. Yeah, I mean, the first time they go through this tunnel, you've got to believe that like the, the police and the border patrol and everything are immediately on it. But it's like, no, we'll just let them continue to have this magical passageway between Mexico yeah. and America. But it's wood tunnels. We don't see no tunnels yeah. here. But well, there's even one point where they're like, I think it's during the, the 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 previous run with the drugs where the border agents who have like preposterously high-tech tools are like, my God, there's like a massive heat signature going into the side of this mountain near the border. Maybe we should check it out. And then they're like, oh no, it's gone. Yeah, uh, it's great. Right, okay. yeah. That's not what we're looking into at all. But, but I mean, this was also the era of recovering from like the George W. Bush in yeah. that level of years. So yeah. Border Patrol being this stupid would not surprise me in real life either. <laughs> well, so this I, is... I can buy it in fiction with yeah. them being stupid. Well, this is the this is uh this is only a couple of years removed from when uh WWE SmackDown told me that border control was JBL out with a torch <laughs> chasing people around. <laughs> Remember that skit? Oh, Oh man, <laughs> remember that guy? A time that council ago. in and of itself. Yes. Yeah. Wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> so they they get out uh, onto the other side, and uh, Phoenix starts beating the shit out of Dom. Uh, oh, but not Dom, sorry, out of Brian. You say before we get to the other side, can I just? How many people does Braga have in the streets? Like, there's a guy at a cockfight. Like, there's some guys like kicking it and having a few beers. So you see two or three of them jump in their cars and chase them down. And then the, when you actually see them running to the tunnel, it's like the two of them in the cars ahead. And there must be conservatively a thousand cars behind them chasing them into this tunnel. It, it, it's sort of why I eventually I made the connection that, yeah, Braga just buys the entire city to be like his people. Yeah, and that makes a lot of like sense. Like standing sort of army. Exactly, yeah. Do you think that yeah. priest was I mean, in there a- and... Some sort of Pokemobile chasing I, I, after them. I wouldn't be surprised. It looked like again, mad fucking Max that yeah. scene. So it, uh, it, it is very much a situation again where it's like if you're a drug, if you're a drug lord, then you can afford a small army. Shit, why not? Hell yeah. <laughs> I um so then what you have, yeah. So at the end of the chase through the tunnels, uh Phoenix is the only one that's really managed to keep up with Brian and uh and, and the boys. Um and just as it seems he's about to beat Brian to death, the only way I can describe this is Dom stabs him with a car. Oh, it's a spe- <laughs> it's a full on spear, like a like yeah. a fucking edge um, Roman Reigns style spearing a man with a car. Just and then blazes out of the tunnel right on the Phoenix and like bang. pretty much like impales him against Brian's like damaged car at that point. He just. Kills him in one shot. Yep. And in, instead of like coming up with a cool line, like, you know, like that you would normally James Bond style delivery, just goes, pussy. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. like, you, you've just bisected a man with a car and then you're going to call him a pussy. Like, thanks, mate. Cheers yeah. very much for that. Um. So, yeah, then Braga is brought to justice after the spectacular death of Phoenix. 
Uh, Is that the best step up to this point in the oh, series? Oh, for sure. It like has 100%. to be, right? Like, he just, he just split a man with a car. Like, it's... I rewound it and watched it again. I love this so much. It's so unnecessary. <laughs> like, it's such overkill. Like, it's incredible. But anyway, um, yeah, the poli- you can hear the police sirens coming. And uh, Brian says, you know, in a call back to one, he's like, you better get out of here. Um, and Dom said he's done running. He gets hauled in. And there's a scene in a courtroom where they think like because of his services and bringing in Braga that maybe they'll go easy on them. But the judge says, no, one one good deed doesn't outweigh a lifetime of crime. Sentences him to 25 years to life with no possibility of parole. What like what, like, what's it? What did he do? Like he stole some stuff, didn't he? he like, stole a bunch of DVD he stole players, DVDs, a, a ton of DVD players, and he fled the country. I get yeah. the twenty-five years portion, but like to life, let's not get it unless they're like yeah. considering the uh, Phoenix death as like a murder charge on him. But yeah. I'm pretty sure that well, was under the West borders. Yeah, so didn't like, he? Didn't he fuck? get? Didn't he get pinned as being like the? he got basically framed as being the head of that syndicate from the first one. That was one of their arms was the, the DVD thing, but it was the, the guys was it, what was his name? Was it Johnny Tran? That was that his Johnny name? Tran. Yeah. yeah. Johnny Tran so that, that kind of gang that he was part of, like, cause do you remember until Brian got to know Dom, the, the, the police assumption was that Dom was the ringleader. So maybe mm-hmm. that's what like, it's this, they think he's like this kingpin, Whereas, yeah, he just stole a few DVD players. Um, But yeah, so uh, the film ends with the scene that will start Fast Five, and that is uh, Dom on the the transit bus going to the penitentiary and the cars speed up around him because it's the start of the jailbreak. And from here on out, you guys, we hit the gas in this franchise, literally and figuratively. And you you know who turn up to save Dom? Leo and Santos from the start of yeah. the movie. You know yeah. they don't give any time to in this movie. Leo and Santos. Yeah, I no forgot money. about them after the start of the movie, and when they were back, I was like, "Oh, they're in this movie." And I was like, "Wait, they were already in this movie." Yeah, yeah they, they totally replaced them with Tyrese and Luda, didn't they? I mean, yeah, yeah they. I mean, they've been in like the first movie as well too. They weren't uh, Los Bundles as well too. So I mean, they've been part of the crew, but they're very much like the side of side characters at that point so it's like they're loyal to dom they're gonna be there for it but it's all also at the same time a situation where they're not that much in the limelight where they're needed to be there in every scene yeah. they're just like well they're part of the crew so we'll bring them in at some point it's whatever. a second hand <laughs> salute for them mm-hmm. like they're not getting the first hand salute they're like he walks over to them maybe later in the evening and then gives them a salute you know what i mean mm. There, there, the, yeah, yeah. The, the other f- interesting thing for me in particular is that I do think that it was through like half it feels to me that halfway through this shoot of this movie in the fourth, with them initially wanting to do four and five at the same time and just bring everything back together, that around this time before being finished was when Vin, uh, New Age Moritz, and then Justin Lin sort of stumbled into the fact that it's like, oh. This is sort of like a heist movie to an extent, just with a little more racing than usual. What if we just did the heist thing on the next one with them like all the time and then it becomes sort of what we eventually get, which we've got a whole episode to talk about that next time around when we get together for this. 
Yeah, and if only we had an expert in Brazilian culture to deal with oh, that for the next boy. one. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. There's going to be some interesting tidbits there. Uh, wait, sure. Before we, we end this one, uh, let's give our, our ranking of villains for this. Uh, Braga, I think in terms of scale and in terms of the theatrical bait and switch, he's close to the top as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'd say I'd put him in two over DK on my end of the spectrum. So Toretto yeah. from the first movie, Braga, DK, and then Carter Santos, Escobar, Caron, whatever the fuck. Yep. Yeah. It was me all along, Austin. (laughs) (laughs) We're just teeing ourselves up for now that we've buried Carter Barone so much. He's definitely like showing up at the end of nine. Honest, I want him to be the guy behind the voice that we see in Hobson Shaw. I would love it so much. Like Uh, like maybe five percent of people in the cinema would pop for that. Yeah. If if you represented five percent of the people in the cinema, <laughs> yeah. oh, uh, oh god! Right, well that'll do it for another episode of the Cast and the Furious. This was a blast, and from here on out, I am like super hyped for the episodes coming up. Um, we've got two more mainline ones uh, episodes covering four more movies, and then we've got our mini special with Hobbs and Shaw and our. Uh, our, our 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 final episode will be what we thought of nine, uh, which mm-hmm. you know coming out Makes soon. Yep. It will come out before we record our next episode. We'll have probably all seen it before our next episode, but we are not going to mention it even once mm-hmm. until our yep. final episode because we know people are going to be over the like late June, early July as the cinemas are opening. People are going to be seeing it, so we're not we're not going to mention or spoil that movie until the very end. Um, when we cover it by itself uh, before we go gentlemen um, hit your Twitter ads and your plugs uh, Jack you first yep so at Jack Glazel at J-A-C-K-L-A-Y-Z-E or Z-E-L-L uh, on the tweet machine for me uh, I, I'm basically tweeting about the Euros at the moment uh, and everything that happens in it because it's kind of my singular obsession at the moment but uh, I also co-host uh, an excellent video game podcast with Dave Ryan of This Parish and uh, Mark Robinson uh, at Lithium Project called at, at Link to the Cast and on Twitter. And uh, yeah, we talk about video games and uh, culture ephemera. And if you're into football, we just did like a, a four hour Euros preview with with guests from other like notable podcasts in and around uh, the sort of British and Irish scene of like wrestling and nerd culture. So yeah. um, go and check those out if you if if you're into football and you have like quite a lot of time on your hands because we I put a lot of effort into those a lot yeah. of research so yeah. yeah only for turkey to betray me immediately <laughs> uh chris where can people follow you and what have you got coming up yeah certainly you can follow me over on twitter land over at brazilian fury that's brazilian with an s instead of a z for me particular episode six of um we just I guess beforehand on that, Jeff and I did finally just do a more recent uh, Strong Style Story, episode 75, I believe, on the chronological aspect of that, in which we finally got to talking uh, a little bit of what's happened since we took a tour to off, uh, what happened in Dominion, uh, the stuff that's going to be happening with uh, Kazuna Road. I'm sure we'll have another episode probably once they get more into this next tour, especially now with... uh, New Japan and USA show getting announced for the middle of August. Along with that, uh, I have another podcast that I am 
the main person on, and I have a co-host with me, one of my closest friends, Jordan, uh, called Soundtracks on the Sticks. That's at Sounds on Sticks on Twitter. You can find the podcast itself under the United Living Geeks podcast, uh, either through notlg.com or through the SoundCloud, uh, which is soundcloud.com slash the notlg. Jordan and our friend Phil, we did record an episode a while back when he was on this Switch stream about uh, Mega Man X. I finally got that all edited through work's been, the new job has sort of been taking priority, but I should have that posted hopefully by sometime within the next 48 hours from this recording. And if it's not there, just bug me on Twitter about it. I'm sure it'll go up at some point. I yeah. will co-sign that that is excellent. Uh, I listened to the Final Fantasy VIII episode and I love, love, loved it. So you should go check that out, guys, if you like video game music. <laughs> and that has reminded me, I have not forgotten that sometime, maybe like over a year ago, I did promise you, Chris, that at some stage I would hook up with you on an episode talking a very specific yeah, game I need to I still like, Yeah, I need to like get, uh, schedule this with a couple of you guys because you, you're on that list. Jeff is on that list. Jack is on that list uh, as well. And then it's just like we're trying to line everything up at this uh, juncture. We finally did the episode with our friend Phil because we were talking about Batman for a while with him being like a Mega Man aficionado the way that he is. And we settled on X Mega Man X being like our choice for that one. So yeah, we'll get there eventually. It's what, uh, look, it's what happens when you have a podcast, but also life and the apocalypse gets in the way. Uh, I know I have guests that I have like verbally agreed on to show up on pick your poison episodes uh, of days of thunder since before the pandemic that I still haven't gotten around to recording. Um, just because everybody's all over the place, most particularly me and Lee. Uh, but yeah, speaking of which, uh, I am at the Dave Dave on on Twitter, and in addition to Link to the Cast, which Jack has already mentioned, I am one of the hosts of Days of Thunder on this very podcast network at WCW Thunder Pod on Twitter, where me and Lee Malone go back into the archives and watch WCW Thunder one episode at a time. Uh, Coming up later this same week that this show has dropped, we have the biggest episode in Days of Thunder history. Not only have we officially, gentlemen, finally gotten to the end of the first calendar year of Thunder after two and a half years of podcasting, (laughs) we've gotten to the end of 1998. But it is Starcade 1998. Uh, It is the final (laughs) episode of 1998. It is... If you know anything about Starcade 1998, you know, historically speaking, in many ways, it is a very significant event. We are having a big record session and dropping that episode this week. So you can look forward to that because it is the tipping point and you are going to see myself and Lee Malone lose our fucking minds uh, over the next couple of years as we go through 99. Um but yeah, you can check that out over on the PWOM network or you know, follow us on WCW Thunderpod to find our dedicated SoundCloud and RSS feed as well. Uh, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure for the cast and the Furious. We will see you another quarter mile down the road for our next installment, whenever that may be. Look out for yourselves, mi familia. <laughs> <laughs>